Well, in a minute I'm going to pray. After my prayer, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and we'll, we'll take the offering. And then I, I want to just let you know, after the offering, typically what happens is the teaching pastor will come back up and jump right into the sermon. This morning's going to be a little bit different. We've come to a part of the Abraham story where, where there's this beautifully written, very lengthy story. And we wanted you to be able to engage in this ancient story and hear it with some fresh ears. And so that'll happen after the offering is taken. Let me pray for that. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and worship you. And that happens in all kinds of ways, certainly through our singing and and our, our praise and worship that way. And through hearing from your word, and we get a chance to hear from your word in different ways this morning. And we're looking forward to that. God, would you speak to us? Thank you for what you're doing all around the world that we here at Fellowship have a chance to play a small part in. God, we pray for Brian and Tom as they're in Germany right now encouraging our partners. Uh, Would you give them the right conversations? Would you give them uh, a message from us here that would be life-giving to those that are serving you so well in that country? Father, for Joanne, as she leaves at the end of the month, God, would you just encourage her as well? Would you give her relationships in that country and opportunities just to be a, a, a light shining in a place where light desperately needs to shine and you desire to shine light in that very special place. And I I pray that Joanne would have the opportunity to be part of that. God, thank you now for a chance to give. And this is part of our worship as well. We open our hands freely as an expression that we are not owners, we're stewards. We're grateful for the chance to be a part of the gospel mission that's going out in this place, in this city, in this world. It's in the great name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Ushers, would you come forward? Listening to the quest. Quest for questions. Questions? Big questions. I'm Heidi. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kim, the innocent bystander. Yes, that's your role, Kim. So today we're talking about odds. Odds. Oddball. Odd man out. So we're talking about the odds of what? Of anything. The odds that you'll find the golden ticket in your Willy Wonka chocolate bar. 
how about the odds that one solitary drop of rain will fall out of an overburdened cloud and hit you directly in the eyeball the moment you look up at that same cloud? Ah! Or maybe the odds the Titans will win the Super Bowl. Ooh, tough odds. Good question. We asked a Titans fan. He said this. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, our odds have skyrocketed since we picked up Marcus Mariota. Odds go up? Odds go down. How about the odds that Trump will win the presidency? Or the odds that the Foo Fighters will go to Italy. Or the odds that a large asteroid will hit your neighborhood. I'd like pessimistic thoughts for 500, please. Thank you. Okay, let's make it personal. What are the odds I'll get cancer? The odds my kids will choose to follow Christ. Those are some tough questions. So how do you even calculate odds? I mean, scientifically. Oh, I I love statistics. It's what I do all day. That's Dr. Don Obert, a friend of mine and one of the foremost statisticians in the United States. I called and asked him, so, Dr. Don, how do you calculate odds? Okay, well, to calculate the odds of anything, you look at the number of factors, determine if they are dependent or independent, and calculate the odds or chance that something could occur at random. For example... Looking at the odds of rolling a fair die ten times and coming up with a six each time. What are the odds? Again, assuming a fair die, the odds are the same as getting any other number ten times. Of course, this is a very simple example. and In real life science, you must deal with a hypothesis, different types of error, various assumptions, and experimental design and models. Ultimately, we can make a judgment as to whether or not something occurred at random or was the event outside the normal distribution of events. Statistics is an odd science. (laughs) Are you calling me odd? (laughs) Never. You know, to me, the big question here is, what are the odds that we can trust God with the odds? Or maybe just, what are the odds we can trust God? Now, that's a good question. It's the big question. Big question. So who in the Bible had to trust God with something big? David. Big grouchy giant. I'll give your flesh to the birds. Noah, big boat. I think I'm allergic to dander. Jonah, big fish. Oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. Big problem. How about Abraham? He's known as one of the fathers of our faith, right? Right, big liar. She's not my wife. She's my sister. He was scared. So he lied? Twice. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Big case of deja vu. Okay, so what about when Abraham had to trust God to give him a son? But he didn't. Didn't trust God. Hagar, Hagar, Hagar. So the odds are Abraham won't trust God in his old age, right? Hang on, Heidi. Let's be fair. Abraham did trust God sometimes. Didn't he obey God and move away from his home country? Oh, right. And don't forget, he also took his son Isaac up a mountain and tied him to an altar. That was pretty trusting. I have to say that didn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, common sense. Ah, Kim, but trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. (laughs) Nice. So basically, Abraham is a mix of trusting and not trusting just like the rest of us. Yeah, I think so. So let's jump to the end of his life. Okay, so at the end of his life... He would have been around 140. And we finally have a really cool example of when Abraham trusted God. Another really cool example of when Abraham trusted God. He needed to find a wife for Isaac, who was now around 40. Ah, an arranged marriage. I'm 41. I could be okay with that. I could arrange it for you. (laughs) Yeah. So Abraham is wrinkled, white hair, white beard, and he calls his most trusted servant over to him and says... 
put your hand under my thigh. Ew. No, thank you. That would have made me more than a little bit uncomfortable. So I looked this up and found out it was just a way of making a very serious oath back then related to future generations. Kind of like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the way we make serious oaths today. (laughs) Right. Okay, continue, Jonathan. All right, so he makes his servant promise. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not find a wife for Isaac from among the daughters of these Canaanites, but will go to my country and my own relatives. His own relatives? Like, what is this, Kentucky? Ouch. Uh Uh-oh, are we going to offend some people there? No, no, my family's all from Kentucky. It's fine. Okay, good. So back then, they wanted to keep their family line pure. More important, they wanted to keep their faith pure. No idols. Right. That meant marrying a God-fearing second cousin was a good thing. In fact, it was recommended. Probably not a good idea today. (laughs) No. So Abraham's servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? And Abraham replied, No, God promised me with an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. God will send his angel before you to find a wife for my son and bring her back here to him. And so Abraham's servant put his hand right under Abraham's thigh and said, I swear. And the servant set out with 10 camels loaded down with beautiful gifts for the city of Nahor, 468 miles to what is now northwest Mesopotamia, a journey which probably took him about two weeks. Two weeks to be really nervous about finding the right girl. Yeah. Yeah, what are the odds he's going to stumble across a God-fearing single woman from his master's family line? Yeah, not good odds. It must have been some serious pressure. I mean, future generations were depending on him finding this one woman. I know, right? So he arrives in Nahor. And then he might have asked himself, where would a God-fearing single woman hang out? The perch? No, the well. (laughs) Funny. So he goes to the well, and he's looking at all the women. Does he just pick one? No. First, he makes his ten camels kneel down by the well. And he prays. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So if the odds weren't slim enough before, he had really set up some slim odds now. But how slim really were the odds? Oh, the odds are mind-numbing, really. I, I can't even wrap my mind around them. That's Dr. Obert again. We decided to ask what would be the odds of one man traveling 468 miles... And arriving at one well... At one moment in time... Asking one woman for a drink... The odds of her saying yes... And offering to water his camels too... Exactly... exactly The way he had prayed. The odds of Abraham's servant having this exact conversational exchange at this exact moment in time... And having this woman say the words he prayed... And then be from Abraham's family... You know, the odds are staggering. I couldn't even calculate it. So just for fun, can you try? Okay. Uh, We could estimate it. Uh, We have at least five factors here. 
the number of days in a week, seven, the number of minutes in a day when somebody would be potentially drawing water from a well, let's say it's about 480, that's 60 minutes times eight potential hours, the number of families in the area, which, well, we don't know how many that would be, uh, I would say at least 20, uh, the number of women at the well, which we don't really know that either, but probably at least 20, and potential verbal responses from the woman, which is three. Three potential verbal responses. The first is a flat-out no. The second is yes, but not offering to water the camels. And the third is yes, and I will water your camels too. What about no comprendo? She could say that. <laughs> yeah, she could. True. So if I multiply these five factors it would be over a million possibilities. And that is not considering that the required response was not a multiple-choice answer for Rebecca. To consider that she would say just what the servant prayed for becomes inconceivably unlikely. No, it seriously can't be calculated. The fact that a woman from this one family on this one day at this one minute at this one well responding to the servant in this precise way... You know, it can only be God. A lot like the odds our little planet can sustain life. Wait, what? Who's that? That's Dawn's wife, Jackie. She's a research scientist, too, specializing in microbiology. Yes, there are two scientists married to each other. So, Jackie, you're saying the odds of Abraham's servant finding Isaac's wife are about as crazy as the odds that Earth can sustain life? Yes. For one, what are the odds our planet would have the perfect amount of gravity and inertia to keep us from falling into the sun? And we also need the perfect amount of carbon dioxide at 0.04% to regulate the surface temperature of the Earth. Add to that the way the Earth orbits around the sun and is tilted at 23.5 degrees. That gives us a wide zone where we can live. Not too cold and not too hot. So the Earth is turning around, getting warmed by the sun, kind of like roasting a marshmallow over a fire pit? Exactly. I hate burned marshmallows. Right? Only toasty brown. Don't eat the burn part. Mm. So, Jackie, I have to ask this. What are the odds that a large asteroid could hit my neighborhood? You had to ask that, didn't you? Actually, we should all be really thankful for Jupiter, because with such a giant planet in our solar system with a huge gravitational pull, about 200 times more asteroids and comets hit Jupiter than Earth. So, thanks to Jupiter, the odds of an asteroid hitting your neighborhood are slim. But what are the odds our solar system would even have a Jupiter? Or that the Earth's axis would be tilted 23.5 degrees? Or that we would have the perfect amount of carbon dioxide? Yes, I would have to call those divine odds. I think what she's saying is that we're all living on this little planet in the midst of the universe, living and breathing against all odds. Right, like the odds of Abraham's servant finding this particular wife for Isaac. So his camels were kneeling down, and he was praying. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. There she is. The servant hadn't even finished praying, and a beautiful woman walks into view with a jar on her shoulder. The servant hurries to meet her and says, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord. She quickly lowers the jar to her hand and gives him a drink. After she gives him a drink, she says, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. Exactly what the servant had prayed. So she quickly empties her jar into the trough, runs back to the well to draw more water, and draws enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man gazes at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord has made his journey successful. 
When the camels are finished drinking, he takes out a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. <laughs> nice. I'd be like, I'm in. And he says, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. It was Rebecca from Abraham's family, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. The servant bows his head and prays. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me directly to the house of my master's kinsman. Directly to the house of his master's kinsman. Incredible. Against all odds. I suppose we like to calculate odds because it makes us feel more in control somehow. But odds are, we aren't in control, are we? Life is uncertain. But we know this. God is the blessed controller of all things. So, what are the odds we can trust him? One hundred percent. I'm Kim. I'm Jonathan. I'm Heidi. And you've been listening to The The Quest. Special thanks to a uh, quite large and very talented team of people that put that together, especially Heidi Petak, who wrote and directed, and Ryan Mitchell, who produced. When I was listening to that, I kept thinking, you know, there's something about hearing something, being forced to listen without, without seeing, you know, images, without seeing pictures, without seeing, you know, moving pictures that, that just creates something in your mind's eye. And I remembered when this story was originally told, it was told to an oral culture. And I wonder how many millions of times, literally millions, this story would have been told by Hebrew families throughout their history when they talked about God's provision in this very unique, very special way. And I, thought, I, I think in our culture sometimes we sort of lose something because we're, we're no longer an oral culture, we're more of a visual culture, but sometimes we need that. It draws us in, and I appreciate the way that that story and the way it was told has drawn me in, and I'll share with you one of the things that stood out to me as I listened to that. I know you, you have some things as well. For me, I, I was sort of astonished with this idea that who was it that set up the enormous odds, right? The million to one odds. Like, who sort of forced that? It was the servant. Right? It was the prayer of the servant. Said, God, would you do this? Not just provide, but provide in this precise way. This woman coming right now to this well, offering to give me water, but not just me, but all my camels. Ten camels that each would have drank probably between 10 and 20 gallons of water. This was a big ask. This took enormous faith. And so the question that I think this telling of this story begs in my mind, you know, is, is what gave this servant the faith to pray this prayer against all odds? Where did he get this faith? And the more I've been thinking about the servant, the more I, I've sort of thought, I want to have that kind of faith. Like, I want to be able to pray big prayers and just have confidence that God's in charge Right? That trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. That he really is, as they said at the end there, the blessed controller of all things. So where I want us to go this morning, we're going to zoom in on uh, a couple of particular parts of the passage because I want us to think about the faith 
of this man, of this servant. And if you want to know something about the faith of someone else, where do you look? I think you look at their prayers, don't you? You can tell a lot about what someone believes in and the kind of faith that they have by zooming in on their prayers. And that's what I want us to do is look at the two major prayers in the first half of this story. By the way, you'll hear the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. You'll hear the rest of the story next week. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 24. We're we're in the first half of this story, and I want us to look at the prayers of this servant, because here's what I think, and I've really come to, to be kind of passionately convicted about this this week. There's something about the way this servant relates to God that is for me. Like, it's for me to apply this week. I think it's for you to apply this week. There's something about this man's faith that I've sort of come to just sit in front of and, and, and be not impressed by, but just it's remarkable faith, and, and I want to be more like this servant, and, and, and I bet you will too the more you dig into it. And here's how I'd summarize this, just kind of a way of preview where we're going to go for the next 15, 20 minutes or so, is I think the key to the servant's faith is two simple things. You'll see this coming out in his prayers. Number one, he understood the promises of God, and number two, he understood his part in the story. He understood God's promises. He understood his part. You put those things together, you get this kind of faith. And I want you to see that yourselves. And let's start at verse 12. This is the first prayer that this servant prays. He says, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be... That the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. This is a remarkable prayer. He's setting up these incredibly unlikely series of scenarios. He's essentially telling God... God, only you can come through in this series of events, and I'm asking you to do that. Now, if you strip away the details of this, I want you to see the big picture of what the servant is actually asking God for. Look back again at verse 12, the end of verse 12. He's asking God to show loving kindness to his master, Abraham. Now, that sounds simple, but there's some really good theology in that. Right? He's asking God, essentially, to be true to the promises that he's already made. Now, where am I getting that from? If we dig down into the word loving kindness, and it is a key word, maybe the key word in this whole chapter. Right? Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about that a number of times here. Michael has taught on that. The other teaching pastors have, have taught on that quite a bit. But I want to remind you, hesed, if you, if you take notes in your Bible, maybe circle that word loving kindness. It's translated other ways in your translation. It might say kindness. It might say steadfast love or unfailing love. But, but they're all pointing to the Hebrew word hesed. And here's what hesed means. It means God loves to be loyal to his chosen people, and his covenant promises. 
That's the two components of God's faithful, loyal, Hesed love. His chosen people, his covenant promises. God is sort of obligated because it's who he is. It's in his character. At his core, God is love. And not just kind of any kind of love like you and I would think of it. Specific, covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful, steadfast, unfailing love to his chosen people and his covenant promises. And so this servant gets that, right? And so he's essentially saying, God, God, would you be true to who you are? Would you keep your promise that you've made to your servant Abraham? You see, he understands the promise of God. And he prays according to what God has already said he will do. Now, for this servant to really understand and get this and kind of lock into the promise of God, he's got to understand specifically that this promise was about Abraham's seed, his descendants. There's no way that promise is going to come true if there's not a wife for Isaac. This was an important, critical piece of the puzzle. So he's got to understand specifically the nature of the promise, and then he's also got to understand who this promise is to. It's to, not to the servant, It's to his master, Abraham. Did you notice how he keeps going back to Abraham? Why does he do that? Because God's Hesed covenant promise is to Abraham. That's who the promise is for, Abraham and to his seed. You see good theology in this prayer. So it's very theologically accurate, but it's also very practical, isn't it? You know, talk about a model prayer. Sound theology, but very practical. Like here, specifically, God, here's what I'm asking for, so that you will fulfill the promise to your servant Abraham that you've already made. So he prays this big, bold, practical prayer with confidence that God will come through. And of course, that's exactly what happens. God comes through. And so once the, the servant you know, fully realizes that God's done exactly what he asked him to do, he's going to pray another prayer. He's going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. And in this prayer, I want us to look at how clearly we see the servant understanding his part in the story. All right, so he gets the promises of God. We see that in his first prayer. Now he's going to clearly articulate he understands his own little part in this story and why that's important. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. Of course, that's, you know, this idea of worship that we see throughout the Abraham narrative. There's always something good happening when someone is bowing and worshiping God. The man bowed low, worshiped the Lord, 27. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness, there's that word again, and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Do you see how well this guy understands his place in the story? You hear how, you know, it's just this natural humility. This is what I love about this servant. It's not about him, right? He's crystal clear on how he fits into the story, and this is essentially what he's saying. This is, he realizes that his identity and his role is tied through Abraham. In other words, he has access to God through someone greater than him, through the one that God has chosen and yet it's, it's, he's not like this sort of like wimpy, you know, wisp of a man. 
Right? This is a man that was fully confident in God's promise and understood his part, and he had an important part to play. It wasn't that. He just recognizes that it's God directing him. You hear how he worded that? As for me, the Lord has guided me. The Lord has done this. Right? He's essentially saying, I just stepped on the field when my number was called, and God has done this. God has made this happen, but it's because of his covenant promises to my master Abraham. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. Here, here's what's remarkable to me about the faith, you know, against all odds, you know, the, uh, of this servant. He's realizing these aren't long odds at all. I'm just asking God to be true to his promise to my master who he's made these promises true. And I'm just showing up and watching God work. You see, he understands the promise. He understands his role. So he prays this really big prayer, but it's in accordance with God's plan and he has confidence it's going to happen. So suddenly really bad odds have become really great odds because he understood the promise of God and he understood his place in the story. Now here's where our story intersects. All right, here's where I think this gets real for us. We actually have a lot in common with this servant. Right? I, all throughout this Abraham journey for the last three months, I've kind of been identifying with various characters. Right? Sometimes I identify with Abraham. Sometimes I've identified with Sarah. Sometimes I've identified with Lot, you know, if I'm honest. In this story, I've been trying to identify with the servant because I've realized I've got something in common with the servant. You've got something in common with the servant. Let me say it this way. Just like the servant, our access to the Father comes through someone greater than us, doesn't it? This is where reading the Bible with the big picture in mind really comes into play. This is why it's so important to think about the big story of the Bible when you're reading the individual stories of the Bible. How is the servant relationally connected to God through his master Abraham? How are you and I as followers of Jesus Christ relationally connected to God through our master, Jesus? So you start to see in the unfolding drama, the story of the Bible, you see Abraham ultimately points to Jesus. And the covenant promises that God gave Abraham ultimately point to the covenant promise that we have through Jesus Christ. You see, the servant understood. His theology was right. He accessed God through his master Abraham. The question for us is, do we think this way? Do we have faith this way? I want to unpack this kind of for the remainder of the time we have because for me, this is the big idea of this, of this story. This is the big idea, the secret, if you will, to the faith of this servant. Listen to the way that Paul explains this in Galatians 3. And we're going to put it on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but you can read it. I really, I really want you to get this. It's that important. Verse 16 of Galatians 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. You see what Paul is doing here? We'll just pause and comment on this verse for a minute. Paul's saying that the covenant promises all along about the seed. It's all about Jesus. Like, he is the seed. 
It all points to him. Now he's going to pick up from there. We're going to move down a few verses, verse 26 of the same passage, Galatians 3. For you all, now he's talking to Christians, right? Now you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, right? That's your ticket in, if you will. It's through faith in your mediator, faith in your go-between, through Jesus, the seed, singular, you're now part of this. Abraham's now your father, therefore the covenant promises are also yours through Jesus Christ. Now he's going to kind of clear the bases with verse 29. I want you to see that. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to promise. This is where we find ourselves in the story. This is our promise. Right? So remember, the, the servant, in order to have this kind of faith like the servant, you've got to understand the promise of God, and you've got to understand your part in the story. Well, here's the promise of God. You are heirs if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's tying all of this together. Another way to think about it is, if you have put your faith in Christ, then God's loyal, covenant-keeping, hesed love applies to you. Right? You're in This is the promise of God. Let's drill down a little bit more into our part of the story because I think this is the best part, you see. This is the part that the servant got right, but I think we often get wrong in the way that we live out the Christian life. And I'd say it this way. God's ongoing, loyal love toward you is ultimately not about you. It is about his son, Jesus. And I just want that to sort of soak in a little bit. Some of you are thinking, I don't know if that really sounds like good news. It's incredibly good news. Why is it such good news? Because Can you imagine how much delight and pleasure and covenant-keeping, faithful love the Father has for his perfectly obedient son, Jesus, that was willing to go to the cross? Right? And, And do you understand that that posture of delight has been imputed on you? And do you understand that this good news doesn't just mean that you're saved from hell, although that's a big part of it, but that even now you have the delight of the Father regardless of your own activity, regardless of your own obedience or lack of obedience. If you've put your faith, your calling out, save me, faith. In Jesus Christ. You start to see how this comes together. Now, this may seem kind of subtle, but it's incredibly important. It significantly impacts the way you relate to God and the way you pray, the way you live that out. And it reminds me of the servant. The servant kept coming back to Abraham. I want to encourage us we've got to keep coming back to Jesus. He's our connection to the Father. Not just for our eternity, but for our here and now. Now, here's what I think happens, you know, if I can just kind of generalize. I know this is true of me. I know this is true of a lot of people I talk to. We, we tend to get grace when it comes to our initial salvation, and we're like, yeah, boom. I can't earn heaven on my own. Jesus did it for me. He died on the cross for me. I put my trust in him. I understand substitutionary atonement, and I'm, and I'm going to be in heaven eternally. But between now and then, I've got to work really hard for God not to be disappointed in my performance. You ever had that thought? Right? A, a lot of our, our frenzied activity and, and, our, and our guilt is stemming from the wrong place. 
right? I'm not saying guilt is bad. Guilt is given by God to alert our attention when we're outside of his design for us. But a lot of times our performance is fueled from the wrong place. It's not like the servant who says, God, it's through your master Abraham that I have connection to you. It's something other than that. And we've taken this approach to spirituality. We made it not about Jesus. We made it more about us as we're living through. Here's the good news. God is pleased and delighting in you because of his son, Jesus. Now, I actually think this understanding can change the way you relate to God. I kind of think there's basically two ways that you can live out the Christian life. I'm sure there's more than that, but, I, but I'm, I'm thinking of two right now. You can make it about you, or you can make it about Jesus. And I want to paint a picture to you. Go back to the servant for a minute in the story. I want to paint a picture of what it might have been like for him if he had lived out his mission, lived out his call, in the way that many of us try to live out our spiritual lives. This is what he could have done. This is what he could have thought. You know, he, he could have said something in his head like this. The success of this mission is up to me. It's going to take all of my effort and discipline to get to Mesopotamia. It's going to take all of my charisma and cleverness to find a woman and talk her into coming back to marry some man that she's never met. And I better work really, really hard at this because if I get it wrong, I'm sure God's going to be disappointed. He didn't take that approach, right? He understood it wasn't really about him. It was about God's promise to Abraham. And he's just connected to Abraham, you see. He rested in God's covenant promises to his master and understood his role in the context of God's hesed, loyal, covenant-keeping love for his master. Now, here's where you and I come in. Why can we be confident in God's love for us? Because his love for us is rooted in his love for his son. That's what we get. It's not just the cross wipes your slate clean and now you can like keep up and make sure that God's pleased with you. No, you're positioned in such a way that you have the delight of the Father because of Christ. It's not up to you. Now, I believe that if this were not the case, if it were kind of based on our performance to keep God's positive thoughts toward us, would we ever be confident that God really kind of loved us, right? Would we ever be certain we hadn't lost God's approval? Would it not be tied to our performance? I thought about how I can kind of just write this out and kind of encapsulate this idea, and I want to read to you what I wrote. It's not perfect, but I think this is true. Your confidence in God's love and faithfulness toward you depends greatly on whose identity and performance you understand his love to be rooted in. Your confidence in God's love is so dependent on you getting this concept that it's the love and pleasure of Jesus Christ and you are in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. You are in Christ. Now, I want to close with just a couple of things. I've heard in our culture kind of creeping in 
an idea that I don't think is really helpful. And it comes from a well-intentioned place, this well-intentioned place of wanting everybody to know that they're personally, individually loved by God. And that is true. All right, but, but let me put some disclaimers on this. Ha- have you ever kind of heard this general idea that, you know, God is just sitting around daydreaming about you? Have you kind of heard that before? Have you heard this idea that, that, you know, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on the fridge? You heard that before? Now, let me tell you something. If God had a fridge, whose picture would be on the fridge? Yeah, you got it. You got it. But, but some of you are thinking, but, 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 doesn't he love me personally? Doesn't he love me individually? Hasn't he counted the hairs on my head? Doesn't he know my name? Like, isn't he present with me? Yes, 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 yes. Here's the image I, I just want to give you, kind of keeping in this picture on the fridge analogy. Okay, can you roll with that? Keep rolling with it. I'm going to try to redeem it, okay? Zoom into the picture on the fridge. If you could see it at the individual pixel level, there's your picture, right? You're one little bitty pixel in this picture of Jesus Christ that God the Father might have on his fridge. You see, you are a part of the body of Christ, and that is no small thing. And here's the thing, men and women, you can take confidence in God's individual personal love for you because you could no more separate yourself from God's delight than a little pixel could jump off that photo and land on the kitchen floor. It is not going to happen because you're in Christ, you see. It's not about you. It's not about what you did. It's not about what you're doing. It's not about what you did yesterday. It's not about what you do tomorrow. You don't have to say, when I become the Christian that that God wants me to be, then he will delight in me someday. That's not how the gospel works. Now, does this mean that we don't obey? Of course we obey. We're free to obey from a different place. You see, we don't have to work just like this servant He realized, I don't have to go make this happen. I just delight in my place in the story. Ask God to keep his covenant faithful love, which I am a small part of. This is Abraham's servant. This is his example for us. I'll close with this. You are in Christ. This is how you know that God is for you. You are in Christ. This is how you know you can trust God with the intimidating odds of your life. You are in Christ. This is how you can pray big prayers. You are in Christ. This is how you can know that trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. And we want to close our service this morning with a celebration of that truth. We're going to sing one more time because I can't let you go without celebrating that. That's just, it's, it's too good news, right? Not to sing about, not to celebrate about. So let's pray together and then we'll worship our Father. It is better than we imagine it to be that we can approach you at all. But the fact that, that it's through a perfect mediator, the fact that your son lived the life that we couldn't live and he earned for us through his life and his death and his resurrection, your approval and your pleasure and your delight. Father, help us to sit in that and soak in that. Help us not to take advantage of it, to live our own way, but may it compel us out of gratitude 
to live the way you intended us to live for your glory and our delight. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Would you stand together as we sing? Your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Hey! 
never gives up, never runs out on me. And your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. And your love never fails and never gives up, and never runs out on me. Your love. Sing higher than the mountains that I face. One more time. Than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave. It's constant in the trial and the change. And this one thing remains. This one thing. Our Father, we can pray that only because we are in Christ. We are part of this beautiful body that you are stitching together from all the nations of the world. You delight in us through your Son, and I pray for this part of your body, these men and women, that they would rest in that this week, that they would approach you through the shed blood of their Savior, their Master, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.